Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver and to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit, where I, Jeff the Pundit, talk with integral psychotherapist extraordinaire and my integral comrade, Dr. Keith Witt, about all things integral, right? Right. Something like which that. Is, which is all things. Which is all things. All which things is a good thing because, because the topic today is fraught with all kinds of stuff. At any oh, rate, <laughs> what we want to talk about is actually something that you have been onto for a long time, and you wrote a book about it, although I'm not sure you published it. No, I never found a publisher yeah. for 100 Reasons. But here's the, here's the title, and this is our topic. 100 Reasons to Not Have a Secret Affair. Yeah. And Keith, I'll start by just reading a paragraph out of your introduction. And it really puts out where you're coming from. And you say, I'm a psychologist who has conducted over 50,000 therapy sessions with men, women, couples, teens, kids, and families over the last 37 years. And I'm here to testify that secret affairs literally screw everybody up. <laughs> so, there yeah. you go. Yeah, we'll put you down as undecided. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and the right, put me down as <laughs> and, and 10,000 sessions, another eight, eight or nine years later, I completely agree with that statement that I made back when I wrote this book. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you consider this good company or not, but I was just watching Dr. Phil, and he said the same thing. <laughs> he says he's been in this business for decades, and never once did he ever yeah. see it work. Now, I will say that in your book, you talked about just considering the varieties of human experience and capacities, there probably are a percent or so that where it might work, and you're not ruling that out. I've encountered them. There, oh, you there, have. Are, okay. there are a few exceptions. In fact, yeah. one of my clients told me if I ever published that book, I needed to put a chapter in for when affairs actually are a benefit, secret affairs are a benefit of Right, system. right. And there are occasional situations where that's true. Right. But that, they're the exceptions that dramatically prove. We can talk about that. Yeah, yeah fair enough. So, yeah, so let's just get started. It's a whole super big deal. And there's a lot of people in the field that I just love. Uh, I love John Gottman and I, I love Estelle Pereira. Uh, I, I like Shirley Glass's book, uh, Not Just Friends. Um, and anybody, everybody who works with couples has to deal with this particular issue. And there's been an awful lot of research about what affair, what creates them, what, what creates sex, sex, uh, secret affairs, what the impact is on everybody, um, how to resolve them. Um, and there's a lot of, of um, it reminds me, I was thinking about this about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was about to go give a, a, a weekend workshop to 300 therapists in Pennsylvania. And I was visiting with Ken beforehand. And Keith is speaking here of integral philosopher Ken Wilbur. And I said, Ken, what do you, th you know, any advice for this three-day workshop I'm doing? Uh, and he was kind of surprised, like, you know, what, what the fuck do I know about three-day workshop? But he looked at me and he said, as many, present as many perspectives as possible. Hmm. And, and I thought, that's really integral. Integral is, is, is that we organize our perspectives um, to have a more full understanding of what the present moment is and how to move forward in the present moment. And, and affairs are, are, are a hazard. 
that most people are not fully aware of. So first, so I want to talk a little bit about what they are and, and what happens and what causes them and stuff. And interrupt me at any point. Well, I just um, want to point out, just to sort of lay the field out, uh, you quote some statistics that yeah. show that 25% of wives and 45% of husbands have affairs. Yeah, well, that, that's one of the higher statistics in one study. Another study is 15 to 25%. Okay. In other words, they're ubiquitous. And the, here's the interesting thing about that statistic. We're, we, humans are one of 3% of animals that pair bond. Okay, only 3% of animals, you know, the, the species that are left on this planet, pair bond. Now, all of those species cheat if they have an opportunity. Uh, so what's, what's amazing about those statistics is that, is that uh, 55 to 75% of men um, and 75 to 85% of women don't cheat. I mean, that's, that's a staggering yeah, statistic. That's, that's the remarkable statistic. That's, that's, that's remarkable. That, that, that reflects something about consciousness creates a new phenomena on this planet where all the drives that push us to cheat, and there are multiple drives that push us to cheat, um, are somehow managed by consciousness um, in, in service usually of intimacy and love. Yeah. Um, no, to, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's an inspired, so that statistic go, went from being alarming to me to inspiring. And, and, uh, and especially given the, the, the lack of training and knowledge that people have about sexuality in general and affairs in particular, it's, that's just an amazing statistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you, you, you say we have these drives, simultaneous drives, to pair bond, to yeah. cheat, yeah. and to be virtuous. And, and to be jealous. And okay. to be jealous. And oh, to defend. Yeah. So, and, and so there's a, there's a lot of, 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 of the apparent paradoxes of human experience that are that have um, explanations or some explanations around looking at the drives, because the drive to pair bond um, obviously gives evolutionary advantage. Because there's when you're out on the savanna and you, and and when we we became bipedal instead of arboreal, a guy protecting a woman and and her kids was was a, an advantage. But of course, if you cheat when you have an opportunity, if you're a guy, you spread your genes around, and if you're a woman, you make alliances with other men and and protect your life. Uh, you know, if a guy's trying to force a woman and she she resists too enthusiastically three million years ago, she gets she's killed. Okay, so so the, the, the and the, the having an alliance with another man in a tribe uh, potentially and more genetic diversity gives her an advantage. Um, jealousy is adaptive. If I see somebody going after my mate and I successfully drive them away and claim my mate, um, that's genetically adaptive. Um, now, since these are these drives are in opposition to cheat on a partner, you have to block them out. The, the partner, you need, you know, you, you can't be overcome with guilt and cheating at the same time, um, and you have to go in opposition of a social norm because if you're pair bonded, there's a social norm of we're not going to hurt each other. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons that transgressive behaviors become sexy. Yeah. Because you have to transgress to, to cheat. So, so why is it that so many sexual fantasies involve transgression? They involve, they've forbidden objects, forbidden activities, you know, uh, 
an analysis was done on porn sites and almost 25 to 35% of porn sites involve breaking some taboo, you know, incest taboos, you know, you know, stepmother, you know, that. So there's a genetic predisposition to eroticize transgression. And then, and then we grow up and whatever is forbidden potentially becomes erotic. So secret affairs are forbidden. So that's one of the things that drives us to, to, to secret affairs. Another thing that drives us to secret affairs is that the nature of eroticism is that there's multiple erotic drives that cause us to bond with people. One, the, the, the pure sexual drive is, is if you and I have an erotic polarity with each other and we start sparking cooperatively back and forth, our nervous systems begin a hormonal cascade that creates states of consciousness and stories that ra- rapidly escalate us into wanting to have sex right now. Okay, now that's just a sex drive, um, which is a lot of fun. And, and as that happens, as the arousal goes up, we become more impulsive, we, th- we have more tunnel vision, we begin to block other people out, all the kinds of things yeah. you have to do to have a secret affair. And this, this illustrates one of the statistics about affairs. Pe- people have a lot of theories about why people have affairs. Um, but the main predictor of an, uh, of an affair um, environmentally is opportunity. People have an opportunity and they, they have a little loophole in their monogamy commitment and bam, they talk themselves through it. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why you can't predict a- affairs um, by asking people how happy they are in their marriage. Um, because people that are on the, the road to affairs often will feel happy in their marriage until they get farther along that road. In right. fact, John Gottman has measured 24 steps that you take. But you can't predict affairs from, from one variable. And the variable is people that cherish their partner and are grateful for what, that part, what they have will tend to not have affairs and be happy, be happy continuously. People that nurture resentments and make negative comparisons between their partner and another person are beginning that slow cascade of behaviors that eventually ends up in betrayal. Yeah, yeah. So that's the first chink in the armor. That's right. And it's a, it's, it, 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 that leads to sort of a dismissal or a dismissive attitude towards yes. the partner. Yes. And, and then on with the show. On with the show. And then you can, you can almost map the 24 steps. I mean, now, I, yeah, John Gottman got a master's in, from, in math and MIT. I am not a math person. I mean, maybe it's six steps, maybe it's, you know, 30 steps. You know, for John, it's 24 steps. But right. the bottom line is there's a series of steps that involve keeping secrets, making negative comparisons, normalizing little petty uh, discounts, um, not resolving issues, um, uh, affiliating with other people, um, developing rationalization systems about it, on and on and on, until an affair happens. Um, and there are different kinds of affairs. There are certain people that are just psychopaths and go after other people in a manipulative fashion, or pure narcissists, and so on. But most people aren't that. You know, most people, it's a, it's a complex series of events. Opportunity leads into the affair, but when the affair happens, it'll have multiple meanings. Generally, one meaning is there's a, the, the most, most common meaning is there is a chink, there is a loophole in my monogamy commitment, and I just discovered it. Okay. okay that's, that's the most common meaning. Like what would be a, for instance, how would somebody justify that? Well, uh, you're on a business trip. 
you know, you go to a conference. Um, you're there, you know, you're there by yourself and your husband's home with the kids. And boy, is this exhilarating to be home with the kids. And there's a guy that asks a particularly intelligent question, you know, and he's got a nice suit on and he looks pretty good, you know. And, and then afterwards, when you're having coffee, he says, hi, you know, my name's John. And you go, well, my name's Sally. And you have a little conversation, and he said, well, I like your dress. And you go, oh, thanks. And, he, and you go, I liked your question. And he goes, well, thank you very much. And then you go on and on, and you go, well, you're going to be coming to the reception later. Well, I'll see you there. Okay. So, you know, John's playing it cool. And now Sally's going, wow, that guy's into me. Okay, now women have an arousal system that involves if a right guy at the right, if, a, if an interesting high-status guy is interested in me, that's sexy. Um, but women tend to be not as connected to their eroticism as guys. So she's not thinking, you know, I want to have sex with him. She's thinking, wow, what a nice guy. He's interesting. I think I'd like to have a conversation with him later on. So later on in the reception, they begin to have wine. Well, back, way back in college, my friend Jeff said, Keith, the best aphrodisiac for a woman is two beers. And, you know, 40 years later, and all the, you know, I don't know how much social research, by God, Jeff, Yep. You, know, you know, if if they wanted, you know, the only reason is the drug companies haven't put a couple of cocktails into a pill and said this is a female aphrodisiac, <laughs> is, they couldn't get away with it. Okay, they have to come up with the, all these obscene medications. Yeah, it reminds me of one of the T-shirts down at one of the uh, beer pubs in uh, Boulder, and it's beer colon helping people have sex for ten thousand years. <laughs> yeah, right on. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> they meet at the reception. You know, they have, she has a glass of wine. He's interested, you know. He asks about her family, okay? The subtext is, I notice that you're married. That's fine. You know, tell me about your children. You know, he tells you about hers. So you want, you want to have dinner later on? You know, yeah. Okay, now that's, they're both interested, okay? Now, you know, during dinner and another glass of wine, now they're beginning to get, you know, he tells her she's beautiful. She begins to get a little bit more excited. They're at a conference. They're staying at the same hotel. You know, he says, you know, you'd, I, and also, I'm, a, I'm an amateur songwriter. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I brought my guitar. You want to go back to my room? I'll play one of my songs. Oh, boy. Okay, you know, so there it goes from there. And at that particular point, bam, they're gone. So they spend a night and they have sex. And hopefully, you know, if you do it, have a good time. You know, so they have a great time. They wake up. And if they're typical people, you know, one of them will feel guilty. You know, now, John might do this all the time. The more you transgress, the more you normalize it. Um, which is one of the problems with affairs and and later on is one of the problems with solving the problem healing the injury which is a major betrayal in relationships um she yeah, wakes up and feels guilty and then she goes oh god you know like my husband richard would feel horrible if he found out he need never know okay and so she goes home with this secret and she had a really good time but she has a secret now, she doesn't know it, but that secret has separated her somewhat from Richard. And she, she doesn't go home, and, and she might go home and be particularly nice because she feels guilty, but in general, she gets a little bit more irritated with Richard because she has a secret, and that separation is irritating, and what we tend to do when we're irritated at other people is blame them. And so this is now we're on the, on the place of separating. Um, if she goes home and she's guilty enough, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's uncharacteristic enough, of her, she confesses to Richard and precipitates a crisis, and they end up in my office. And this would be a pretty good one because she didn't lie about it hardly at all. And you know, they came into my office, and she confessed he didn't discover it. Um, and she confessed quickly, and 
really has a remorse. Yeah, yeah, okay, so that's a little bit easier, even though, now, th let's contrast this, okay? Say Henry. Henry goes to a strip club with his friends. You know, he's staying aloof. You know, they're all getting drunk and acting weird. He's not. You know, he's maintaining a sense of dignity. He has a couple of conversations with people. Um, there's one woman that seems pretty intelligent. A lot of intelligent women go to strip clubs. Uh, I know this for a fact because my daughter's a stripper, and, you know, a lot of them are co-eds working their way through college. Um, I got to say, Zoe's getting sick of being a stripper. You know, she's transitioning into something more benign. She's going to take the LSATs. <laughs> yeah, is she good? <laughs> yeah, step up. Step up from stripper. Be a Anyway. You know, you develop a love affair with her and then keep a secret love affair going. You know, this guy, Henry, might travel a whole bunch. Keeps a secret love affair going for 18 months. He's really good at hiding it. You know, takes this woman all over the place, squires her around, plays house with her when they talk about, well, we will have a thing. But he never really imagines it. And his wife discovers it 18 months later. And she flips out. 18 months he's been lying to her. 18 months he's been unfaithful. And he says, well, you're going to have to, she says, you're going to have to break up with her right away. And by, by this time, 18 months later, he's passed through romantic infatuation with the secret lover. And it's kind of a relief for him to p pass through it because he's, he's maintaining this fiction. We're going to be together too, too long. And it's beginning to fray at the edges with a secret lover. But then, now his wife has to deal with the fact that he successfully lied to her for 18 months. He cheated on her for 18 months. Major betrayal. And, you know, for a couple that hasn't had a betrayal, they live in a universe with no betrayal until it happens. Yeah. And now, you know, the, basically the, you know, the bite has been taken out of the apple. The universe will never be the same. Fifteen years later, when he's gone for a week or so, there'll be a part of her, say 15 years later of, of, of major fidelity. She'll have a little thing, maybe he's cheating on me, in a way that she didn't have before. Yep. And, th and that'll be true for, the, the, for Sally's husband when it was a one-night stand. Yep. And this is true, you know, for Henry's wife. Right. So we're at the conference where, you know, there's this whole cascade of things from a little bit of I like your dress to the drink to the guitar. Yeah, yeah. Where do you jump ship here? I mean, how do you not do that? Okay, this is great. Great question, okay? Um, and also... How do you deal with the fact that chasing a, pursuing a partner and claiming them and having an attractive guy pursue you and claim you is a lot of fun in itself? Okay, so monogamy, you give up something that's a lot of fun. Falling in love, which, you know, the second person did. There was a whole romantic infatuation. There's a, an 11 hormone cascade that lasts for six to 18 months with falling in love. Falling in love with another person is a lot of fun. Human beings can have attraction and have a one-night stand, just eroticism with one person, be in romantic infatuation with another person, and have a pair-bond relationship with another person all at once. We're capable of having those things simultaneously. The big progress for me with one guy I worked with was I've began, I got, finally got him to be faithful to the secret lover he had with his wife because he was cheating <laughs> on his secret lover. Okay. But when he stopped cheating on the secret lover, then eventually I got him to stop having secret lovers. It was, it was that much. Okay. Now, when you're saying we could do those three things simultaneously, we can do them, but it's not going to be working. It's not going to be healthy, right? No. Or, yeah. It's, okay. it's going to literally be a clusterfuck. Yeah, okay. literally. If, if there was word, if there was ever a situation that was designed to fit that word, 
but but to answer your question we have erotic polarities all the time okay i mean i was telling you i was swimming at los baños this morning i swim a lot of well you know there's half you know there's a bunch of women and a bunch of men there's never been a time that i've swum where i haven't seen a woman i'm attracted to okay there's a little erotic polarity um just that little spark okay okay now that spark is a pleasurable spark um, when I'm when I'm talking to a woman or even working with women, I will feel her feminine responding to my masculine, my masculine responding to her feminine. There's an erotic polarity, and I enjoy that. Okay, but I'm also aware that there is a boundary that optimizes the highest good for everybody. So I can enjoy the energy of being attracted and be and someone being attracted to me. But since I don't, as far as I know, don't have any loopholes in my monogamy commitment, and you know, and I have a lot of strong principles about this, I keep that boundary right at the point where, yeah, I appreciate you as an attractive person, um, and I'm enjoying this, and you know, this is serving the highest good. I support you and everything in appropriate relationships, and and I'm not threatening my partner. Um, now, if you're, most of us are taught to ignore erotic polarity. Um, uh, we're, that's because children are not taught about sexuality, uh, right. and, and are not, and are discouraged from feeling sexual, talking right. about sexual stuff or being sexual with each other. So, the, so, I mean, here you're consciously going to enjoy the fantasy. Well, not exactly. Fantasy is a whole nother thing. Oh, I'm almost on, there. Now, now I'm going to get to fantasy. I'll go to fantasy next. Okay. I'm enjoying the energetic exchange. Okay. And okay, fair enough. I see the difference. I'm keeping it at the energetic exchange. If I start fantasizing about this person, that enjoyable attraction is beginning to turn into a distracting attraction, where instead of enjoying this energy, I am suffering because I'm not letting myself pursue her. Okay? And I might be giving ambiguous messages about my interests, which is what people generally do. This is why the Not Just Friends was the title of Shirley Glass's book. People pretend they're just friends. No, they're not. And then they'll begin to secretly flirt, and that turns into a distracting attraction, which can turn into a love affair, which can turn into a romantic infatuation. Right. Varying levels of, 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 of engagement. But let's talk about imagination. Esther Perel, who wrote State of Affairs, which I admit is a much better book than 100 Reasons to Not Have a Secret Affair. I read that book, and I thought, okay, I don't feel so bad about not having a publisher for 100 Reasons, because I like her book better than I like mine. You know, there's a lot of neurobiology and evolutionary psychology in mind that she doesn't have that I like, but I don't know if, you know, if that's necessary or, or, or not. Anyway, she says that imagination is a sexual superpower, and I completely agree with that. Okay? When we pass into intimate bonding with a partner to keep the love affair of life, remember, a relationship, if it's a committed relationship or a long-term, it's a friendship, it's a love affair, it's a capacity to heal injuries. And that relationship is all of these processes that need to be maintained. The friendship is processes, love affairs processes, and resolving injury is processes. These are main processes that need to be maintained every single day, all day long. Okay. Like I have those processes. Becky's not in the room right now, but there's a part of me maintaining those processes now. And I have a, a directionality to how I want to maintain them. I want to maintain them in a way that supports our friendship and our love affair, our capacity to heal injuries, so that we have a subjective sense of being, of cherishing each other and being grateful for what we have. 
Yeah. And for, for me, that involves a relationship that's gradually improving. Right. right. Now, when you enter intimate bonding after romantic infatuation, there's less sexual urgency and it requires consciousness to keep the love affair going. And that's harnessing your imagination to in engage in a, in a sexual relationship that has the kind of uh, regularity and variation that keeps it feeling interesting to both of you. So married couples have to have premeditated sex. They have to have their go-to sex. Go-to sex with a married couple is, you know, we're both tired. We want to do it. We, we both know the roles. I know my moves. You know your moves. We can go to that without much variation. We can have a predictable good, good time. Go-to sex. Yep. Okay. Now, we can have infinite variations on go-to sex, but you need go-to sex. You need premeditated sex. Or if, you have any if anybody who has kids knows your love affair goes, goes to hell yep. unless, you, unless you have that. And you use your imagination for that. And so that's right. what lingerie is. That's where Randy Newman's song, You Can Leave Your Hat On, comes from. You know, take off that dress. Yes, yes, yes. Take off those shoes. You don't need those shoes. You can leave your hat on. Yeah. Okay, so that's Randy Newman. Yeah. He has something forbidden in his unconscious says the hat on makes it more erotic. Remember, transgression adds to eroticism. Yeah. And there, he's using his imagination with her to make it a little bit hotter. Okay, so, the, so we use our imagination to make sex hot with our partners. We use our imagination in our autoerotic lives. Um, um, when there's a disparate sex drive with people, but they still are working at um, having a satisfying sexual relationship, and the characteristic of a couple that feels generally fulfilled is, and this is really interesting, I've mentioned it before, when one person initiates, and the other person says, no, the person who initiates says, that's fine. I love you. You know, anything, totally. I can do to, anything I can do to help you out. Yeah, totally. Okay? And, you know, it's not just the words. It's the vibe. Yeah. Okay. Like, according to, to Gottman's studies, whenever that was present, couples reported having plenty of sex. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, that, of course, is the tip of the iceberg with that couple. Right. I'm not really benign. If I say, let's have sex, and she says, no, and I go, okay, no, well, that's that's fine and I can be good vibes. That means I have confidence in her as a lover. I have confidence that she's as invested in me being fulfilled as I am in her, you know, feeling supported. And that's really hard. Um, yeah. And it's well, this fantasy thing is interesting because um, what you're saying is to keep the sort of erotic charge consciously with your partner, on your partner. Mm -hmm. um, and don't go too far into the fantasies of other partners. Mm -hmm. And that certainly includes porn. And, you know, there's a lot of wreckage around porn in sexual relationships. Yes. That it's, it's where it's just completely spirals out of control. And so that's, that's interesting because I'm sort of putting that continuum together here. Yeah. You know, and I, I actually think that the, the continuum also continues, or it's, maybe it's another sort of vector, but into where you get into emotional affairs. And what, what are those in, you know? So an emotional affair is we, we haven't touched each other. And, you know, to me, I, I really don't, um, I, haven't, I haven't encountered true emotional affairs in my experience, okay? Well, okay, so let's pause there because you have 35,000 of them yeah. in terms of your clients. Yeah, 60, so, well, millions. But anyway, yeah, you're right. All right. I, I've had... An emotional affair is, is we haven't touched each other, but there's an erotic exchange. Okay. You know, 
an emotional affair is I still feel erotic towards you, you feel erotic towards me, and we're having some kind of erotic exchange, whether it's texting, whether it's, you know, like whatever, pictures, that kind of stuff. If it's people that just honest to God like hanging out with each other, but they don't, but they have perfect sexual boundaries. I, you know, I have a person, I have a friend of mine up north where, you know, she's a really good friend and she and I can have geek talks about psychology that I can't have with Becky. Becky is zero threatened by that. Okay? Mm-hmm. There's no erotic polarity. There's zero uh, uh, difficulty around that or whatever. So an emotional affair is still an affair. It's erotic, but it doesn't involve touching. It's still erotic. You know, a hot kiss is having sex. Oh, we, you know, I didn't have penetration. Sorry. You know, if you right. go as far as a hot, set, a hot kiss, there, there it goes. Right. And, and here's the thing about porn. My problem with porn is that porn teaches people how to use their sexual imagination on the, in the sexual occasion, but in two ways. One, it's pure self-gratification. So there's no, it's not a reciprocal uh, experience. And Masters and Johnson found uh, in 1975 that most of their couples really didn't care that much about the other person's pleasure, the heterosexual couples. So homosexual couples did. Heterosexual couples didn't that much. They just wanted to get off, which was kind of depressing. Maybe that's different now, 50, 40 years later. But my problem isn't that. You know, I think porn is very good to give people permission to have whatever sexuality that they have. But the problem is that we're not taught to have an intimacy infrastructure, to create the infrastructure of intimate relationship that can sustain the intensity of that kind of erotic imagination. Hmm. And this is But you think that's possible? Not only is it possible, it's been demonstrated in Holland. Okay. Really? Yeah. Okay. Holland in the nineteen I think it was the late the seventies had the foresight, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a psychologist, they put their sex education in the hands of psychologists because they weren't fucking idiots like we were in the United States and put it in the hands of religious fundamentalists. Okay, so the psychologists got all scientific about this. They went, okay, so we can't just teach kids about sex. We have to teach families about sex. So they taught, they taught kids about eroticism and about relationships and about clean communication and about the steps of intimacy. And they brought the families in and they taught the families about it. And they had the families and the kids talking to each other about it. And they normalized appropriate levels of sexual engagement. And when the teenagers were ready to have sex, everybody knew they were having sex and they would have sleepovers at other people's houses. They'd have sex, they'd have safe sex and stuff. Um, and they did that for, you know, they've done that ever since. So let's fast forward into 2010 when we look at the data. Let me see. One-seventeenth the teen pregnancies that America has. One-seventh the amount of abortions. Um, 90% of those kids said that their first sexual experience was with somebody they cared a lot about and it was a lot of fun. Three or four years into this thing, they did an analysis of it. Because remember, psychologists like to test everything all the time. And they found out that the kids still thought that sex was something the girl did for the guy. So they changed their sex education stuff. Everybody has to have a good time. You know, you're not doing a good job unless the girl's getting off. And you need to know what that means. And you need to know how that fits into a relationship. Well, then after that, the girl started getting off and said, we're having a good time. Okay. And so at least sexually, Holland has a head and shoulders above the United States and other Western countries that don't have this kind of 
Now, now, one thing that I don't know, and I haven't found this data, I don't know what the rate of sexual, of secret affairs are in relationships in Holland. Right. I don't know how this affected that. I just don't know. Yeah, well, uh, if anybody, uh, I know there are a lot of people in Holland who listen to this. If you have oh, some experience hey, in it, Jeff at DailyEvolver.com. Uh, yeah, but we want to know, you know yeah. what are the statistics of secret affairs in, in Holland? Has this sex education, has that changed? That yeah. And what's your experience of this sex education in general? I'd love to hear that. Yeah. What's your, yeah. So when I, when I'm working with, with, with parents, so, you know, so every once in a while a parent will come in and they'll go, well, my six year old is masturbating. You know, what do I do with her? I go, well, first of all, you gotta have a conversation, let her know those feelings are sexual feelings and let her know that masturbation in this culture is something you do by yourself. You don't do it around other people. Oh, well, now, now she wants to be to fool around with her brother. Okay, well, you let her know, you know, in this culture, you, you know, in, you know, the rules of our family is, is, and the rules of this culture is people aren't sexual with people in their family. It's called incest, and it causes people to have problems. Um, well, who can I have it with? Well, you can have it with somebody your own age, not somebody older or younger, and you can do it with them if they're, if they're interested and you're interested, and if both parents say it's fine, Okay. Now, this is kind of bullshit because, you know, when are you going to find two families where both parents say it's fine for our seven-year-olds to go in the back, you know, room and fool around with each other. But what you're doing is you're giving the child permission to be sexual. You're normalizing the fact that she's a sexually alive person. We're assuming she's among the vast majority of children that are sexually aware but weren't molested. You know, back in the, the late 70s, if a kid was, was sexually aware, they go, oh, that means she was sexualized by an adult and they would even diagnose that must have been molested by somebody. The statistics are about that were said, no, that's not the case. That's the case in a, in a certain percentage of children that are sexually precocious. But most kids, some, some kids aren't interested and some kids are. I came by it natural. Me too. <laughs> and I was, I, was, I was interfered with and shamed by my culture at, I don't know, four or five or whenever I started yeah. with Eric and Stephanie in my neighborhood. And then I went, okay, I guess I'm on my own. And I was for the next 10 or 15 years, and it was fucking miserable. Um, yeah. So it's hard in this culture where, where – so I encourage families to have open conversations about this and normalize and support their children's sexual development and then let them engage in age-appropriate bonding with other kids and age-appropriate yeah. holding hands and kissing and all the things that kids start doing in fifth and sixth and seventh grade and stuff. And then, you know, what you have then is a progressive series of steps that they can take into intimacy and then into sexuality. And what porn, up, what porn will do is hijack that process. Yeah. You know, you know, particularly boys who are visually kinesthetic. And if you're a type of person that is easily addicted, Porn is an addictive substance. Yeah. And so what do you do if you're 15 years old and you're addicted to porn? Yeah. Okay, well, now you got to do a recovery process. And this is very much like recovery from food addiction. You know, you can't like stop doing, stop doing sexuality like you stop doing coke. You know, you got to find a healthy and normal expression. You just like you can't stop eating if you're addicted to food. You have to learn how to eat healthy food. Um, and so that involves not doing porn because it's so highly charged, and, but then learning how to have an appropriate relationship with your own sexuality while now going back and doing the learning about how to yeah. have the infrastructure and intimacy that can sustain a healthy sexual relationship. Yes, yeah. no, and you see a lot of particularly these young guys who are, 
you know, really aware of that and on these porn-free sites and really helping each other. Reddit's got a whole big thing on that. Yeah, no fap, it's called. Yeah, exactly. And, um, uh, and porn-free. And yeah. these guys are, um, you know, really working on that. And, and it's interesting to look at all of this developmentally because mm -hmm. in a way we think that development, because we, especially boomers, we came of age in the sexual revolution, it means more and more freedom. And it doesn't necessarily. Right. You know, it actually means more and more discernment. And, and I noticed that you said in, in, in the manuscript you sent me that, um, that while more people are having affairs, more people are disapproving yes. of having affairs. And I think, and, and also that developmentally, the higher you get in terms of development, the more you are able to, you know, see the beauty of not doing things like this and the payoffs of that. The payoffs. You, the, a huge burden of the last hundred years has been the romantic marriage. I mean, that just didn't exist as a thing before the 20th century. You know, it was normalized that people would go off and have affairs. And there's still cultures where they do that. And I've, I've mentioned this study before. There was this town in Italy where everybody was having an affair with somebody, but nobody talked about it. Um, and there's a tribe in Africa where, you know, they had to go off in a herd. And it was normalized when you're off in a herding, you know, you have an affair with, with whoever you're herding with and your wife or your husband is having an affair. There's cultures that have normalized it. But here's the thing about development. As you develop, as you get higher, broader embrace, higher capacities, intimacy has more capacity for depth, but then it becomes more vulnerable. This is a dialectic of process, of, of progress. It becomes more vulnerable to injury if you feel betrayed, um, unsafe, those kinds of things. So to have the kind of depth of intimacy that is possible for people who are post-formal operational and committed to each other, to have that kind of intimacy, to have that kind of depth requires a certain level of trust and safety um, and focusing on you know, commitment that wasn't required in previous ages, particularly because now we're living so much longer than we've ever lived before in human history, even in the midst of all this unhealthy stuff that's around. So that the, the promise of, of that intimacy, that, that friendship and that love affair deepening over a lifetime is phenomenal. And if you talk to long-term committed people, they'll tell, you know, like me, they'll, they'll tell you, yeah, we have, we've had problems, but I feel lucky beyond belief in my friendship, my love affair, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and so on. <clears throat> and so that's protected by uh, um, monogamy. And if you violate the, the monogamy uh, uh, boundary, you can recover from that. 70% of couples do. But the universe has been changed irrevocably. Yeah. Because it yeah. didn't exist before. Now, you can still have a great universe. But that great universe now includes the fact that, yeah, he cheated or she cheated at that particular point. And then we had, and this, this now we're going to how you deal with affairs. Now, our new marriage that we started after the old marriage ended with the affair, that new marriage that we started, we've been faithful to each other. And now you're essentially building a new universe. In that universe, there's just all this potential to support each other's evolution. But in a relationship, it's a very fragile, it's powerful, but it's fragile. You need to maintain that friendship on it and that love affair and that capacity to heal injuries on a daily level. And, so, and it's, you know, it gets easier the more you, you grow, but it's never always easy. There's always challenges. Mm-hmm.
And then you need, if you don't meet those challenges and start normalizing negative comparison or comparisons or nurturing resentment, you begin that 24 step glide into betrayal. Um, and, and then the best marriage can go on the rocks after 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, if people aren't taking care of business in those crucial areas. Right. And that's, that's very demanding. Yeah. Well, what would you say is, what do you see in your clients when you have a couple that's recovering? And, you know, what are the rules of thumb of this? So here's the rules of thumb. Um, I'm smiling because, you know, it's, you know, if you ask the surgeon, you know, he's done a thousand appendectomies, what's it like to do an appendectomy? You go, well, here's how you do it. <laughs> Okay, so here's, you know, now this isn't as quite as accurate as that. So somebody comes in, she cheated on me, he cheated on me. Or even more often, you know, I'm cheating on my husband. I go, well, what do you want? I want my marriage to get better. Well, you're going to have to tell him you're cheating. No, I can't do that. Oh, all right. Um, well, let's explore what that means. But anyway, so let's, let's fast forward to the fact that they both know about it. And they come in, and one person is completely outraged and pissed off and, and upset, and the other person is guilty and defensive and all this other stuff. The way that Shirley Glass talks about it in her book, uh, Not Just Friends, she said, I, and I like how she puts this, there's a tone, a tune, and a touch. Okay? And, you know, that's basically what I tell people is I say, okay, here we are in the shitstorm. So if you guys want to work with me, we'll work and, you know, we'll explore this. And there's a lot of uncomfortable things to do. And then what we'll do is we'll kind of work our way through this shit storm. And after one month, two months, three months, five months, six months, whatever months, we'll be at the place where we should have been if you guys would have come in. If one of you had said, boy, I'm thinking about a secret affair, we should go to therapy. Okay? And then we can start dealing with whatever it is in your relationship which is probably some variation of nurturing resentments and doing negative right. comparison or something Right. about building a, a new marriage where you two can be happier together than before. And then the person who was cheated on will say, well, I was happy before. I thought everything was great. You know, I thought that we were fine as lovers, you know, and then we find out whatever it, it was that caused him to cheat. It might've been just one of those opportunity things. You know, where he has a loophole. If I have an opportunity and get away with it, I'll do it. It might have been something more profound. Once in a while, it's, a, it's, it's an exit affair. Somebody has an affair because they want to get out of a relationship. And then that, 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 as we work on it it, 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 it gradually becomes apparent, you know, that I don't want to be married to this person. And then, okay. So, you know, this is a messy way to do it. But, but now that's the real issue. So, um, sometimes, often, when you get down that 24-step, I like calling it the 24-step cascade. Just It's kind of a, a cool thing. You know, people start missing each other because you keep secrets. You don't talk anymore. You're crabby. You don't have fun. And one person says, I was lonely. I was lonely around you. We didn't talk anymore. We didn't smile at each other anymore. Here's this person talks to me, smiling. And it was so nice to have somebody who was into me and thought I was great instead of contemptuous me and so on. And so now we're beginning to get into the thing of, I want us to be better again, and I don't know how to do it. And I went out and had an affair, and that was great. But what I wanted is with you. And then we go, okay. Now we're beginning to get into the, the attunement stage. And, you know, and then we move into attachment is feeling safe together, beginning to build trust and then loyalty, and also working on eroticism again. Um, 
often one partner will really want to be sexual right away to kind of, particularly guys, to kind of claim, reclaim their partner. Sometimes people go, I don't even want to touch um, the other partner, more often women, because, yeah, it's icky. When I start having sex, I just think about him and that other person. And, you know, and the longer they go without having sex with each other, the more profound the injury becomes because they're, they're now suffering around that particular separation and both are blaming the other person for it. And so you work with them on a regular basis. The person who atones, the guy that, say it's the guy, well, or, or the woman, they have to understand what they did is made their partner and their family disappear while they self-indulged in this affair and they caused great suffering. And, it, and when people finally let, let that in, they feel an enormous amount of remorse. They go, oh, my God. You know, I, I didn't just cheat on my wife. I cheated on my children. I didn't just cheat on my husband. I cheated on my children and my family. Because a secret affair is everybody involved suffers. Okay? <clears throat> you know, one of my favorite metaphors about this is, you know, a married couple in, in bed having a great time, having fantastic sex that has positive effects on their children and their in-laws and their friends and their neighbors and their totally. community. A couple having a secret affair, having the same wonderful, great sex has negative effects on their children and their partners and their family and their community and so on. It's, it's, it's the person begins to see the scope <clears throat> of the damage and they express that they're they'll often will have them write a letter about it. But the bottom line is that there's some, sense of, of remorse and some sense of understanding and some sense of renewed commitment to make it better with us. And the other person seeing that begins to find their genuine desire to be connected again. And then out of that comes doing with whatever issues, communication issues, um, <clears throat> caring for each other issues, normalizing petty violence, emotional violence. No, every time you normalize just being dismissive of, of, your, of each other, you're normalizing a form of emotional violence that separates you. That puts you on this, this path. And so, you know, when we do this, you need to catch and go, oops, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't like the tone I just used with you. You know, you, to be aware of how we're always connected. And then you move into attach, you move into having the kind of shared experiences that leave you both feeling fulfilled and leave you in a, in a place where you're beginning to co-create a universe again. It's a shared universe that has your own personal rituals, family rituals, couples rituals, um, the kinds of things, both friendship rituals and love affair rituals that then begin to build a friendship and a love affair where people can say in our last in the marriage that we had before the catastrophe, we let it go. And now we, we, consciously attend to caring no. for each other and sometimes it takes months sometimes it takes years for a couple to, to come back it's, it's a lot of work yeah uh, you know I, i'm just uh, reverberating with that word catastrophe before the catastrophe yeah you know that's a big word and and i could see that i mean I, I i first of all i wonder how do people do it logistically Oh, yeah. It's, you'd be amazed how creative people. See, this is where now your imagination, affairs harness your imagination naturally. You have to harness your imagination in an intimate bond with conscious intent. Focus, intent, and action in service of principle and driven by resolve is a huge superpower, but that's work. When you're in a secret affair, it's not work. You naturally harness your imagination. You naturally find a way to, to have a couple hours free in the afternoon to meet your lover for a drink and go up into the hotel room. 
you naturally go, oh my, yeah, I got this business trip, honey. You know, I'll, I will, I'll be back on Monday. And then, you know, you call up your lover and go, look, I can meet you in uh, Pismo Beach and we can have, you know, I can go to the, the conference for, you know, four or five hours and we can have the rest of the time with ourselves. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, and then, or you can take those toys that we bought online. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. See, the imagination is naturally harnessed. And as you harness that imagination and go into those aroused states, those aroused states cause you to make your other life, your wife, your husband, your kids, disappear. Partly because you have more testosterone when you're aroused, and testosterone is a tunnel vision drug. Tunnel vision makes other things disappear, and partly because when the body feels a little bit of erotic tingle, it starts making other things disappear and starts talking us into wanting to have sex right now. And if there's an attractive other that wants to do it, now we have mutually reinforcing states. You know, human beings mutually reinforce states, for better or worse. So in a love affair, you naturally do that. And yeah. so you enter these delusional states and you're using your imagination naturally to, to one, block out the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. and, you, and you know, you have some rationalization system, like, you know, she'll never know, or we haven't had sex in two years, or, you know, there's mm -hmm. some bullshit rationalization system that's there on some level that, that justifies doing it. It always breaks down like a house of cards when it's beginning to examine directly. Um, yeah. You know, you well, know, you said, in fact, let me read something that you said, Keith, because I thought it really got to um, just what you're talking about. Uh, and you're, you're saying about reasons not to have an affair. And you said, instead of having an affair, turn courageous attention to loving your spouse visibly yearning and making it safe for your partner to do the same is scary, difficult, and might not save your marriage, but reaching for passion and love expands you. You grow, and if you do divorce, it was because you struggled unsuccessfully for passionate marital love, not because you cheated. I love that. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, take that erotic energy and turn it to your partner whether or not you've had sex for the last two years. Exactly. And, and maybe go to a therapist and get it, see if you can get it revved up again, but at least die trying. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you know. And I, that's, you know, that was the end of my first relationship back in my 30s was that, you know, we had bedroom death. It's not oh. uncommon, particularly, it's not uncommon, I guess, if anybody, but gay men, you know, it's like the, we were charged elsewhere and you know and it was actually appropriate and it end, but it did end the marriage if you will but uh after that it was like i can't do that again you know no it's exhausting yeah, debilitating. Ex yeah exactly but how about this category and i'm trying to think of you know does everything you say also apply to gay men uh and you know to sort of unconventional relationships and I'm sure you run into this with, you know, there's a whole thing on polyamory and, oh, yeah. you know, bringing somebody in, we all threesomes and, um, and even just like the quickie in the parking lot or, or a prostitute, so a happy ending of a massage. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So let's, let's deal with all those. So let's, let's start with gay men. Um, at, at least according to the literature and my own experience, there's a little, there's more variation with gay men erotically than there are with other groups. Now, that being said, if you start normalizing having sex with somebody else when you're in a committed relationship, so as, 
in almost every relationship I've seen that, the relationship, the sex becomes more and more tepid with your partner. Every once in a while, people will bring a third person in. Couples will do that sometimes. Yeah. They'll recruit another man or a woman. They have sex. They're both. Again, it seems like a lot of trouble to me. Well, yeah. I <laughs> but mean, go on. Yeah, back in the back in the back in the twenties, you know, Becky and I were not monogamous until we were in our early thirties. So it's like we I tried every variation that I could think of, and more than one person in bed was too much trouble for me. I'll, I'll tell you that. I mean, it worked better in fantasy than it did in reality. Yeah. Um, and polyamory is very different from infidelity. Polyamory is, is about a lot of communication, a lot of honesty, a lot of integrity, right. a lot of structure. And polyamory, people take their connections and their sex very seriously. So, you know, when Becky and I had different partners, I suffered when she had another partner, but I never felt betrayed. But I suffered enough that I thought, it's worth it to me to not have sex with other women, to not have to go through the agony of her having sex with another guy. Um, now, that's just my own, was my own personal discovery about that. Later on, as the decades passed, and I worked with couple after couple after couple, and I began to see more and more social research, um, overwhelmingly what I saw is that people will go through a stage of being more experimental. Um, but if people stay with a, in, a, in a relationship, eventually that relationship um, evolves into a monogamous commitment. Um, sometimes it takes years, five, 10 mm -hmm. years sometimes, but eventually, you know, one couple, you know, they tried marrying another guy and had him in their relationship for a while, but that eventually, as far as I, from what I, from what I know, I don't, I'm not yeah. really clear. Yeah. A, a couple of couples actually who did that, you know, eventually they, they evolved into monogamy. So, so the difference, if you're going to be hurt by having extramarital liaisons, do it honestly. You know, talk about it and, and, and so on. Now, some people just can't do that. The yeah. idea of their partner going out and being sexual. Now, now prostitutes is a whole other thing. Okay? Um, I don't have much empathy for, for prostitution from the perspective of I kind of need to have my partner to have a good time. Or at least I need to be able to sustain, suspend disbelief about it at the very least. And I know prostitutes, because I've worked with prostitutes. They don't really do, do prostitution for the sex most of the time. I mean, it, you know, it's okay. But, you know, their sexual relationships are with other people. Um, uh, well, you, you actually put a, a joke that I laughed out loud at, and I'll, I'll read it in, in, okay. in your book. You <laughs> said, a client you told about, me. <laughs> yeah, a client told you. And, and the, so the joke is, what's the difference between a prostitute, a mistress, and a wife? And the, uh, the prostitute says, faster, faster, faster. The mistress says, slower, slower, slower. And the wife says, I think I'll paint the ceiling blue. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you're, you're in a bind here as a, as a man. Well, and also it, it reflects particularly the transition in parenthood. Okay, that's a really hard transition sexually. You know, you have to have a lot of consciousness as a couple to recover your love affair in the first year after the birth of the first child. And some couples do and some couples don't. Yeah. But if you don't have that consciousness and that intent, if you don't start redefining sensuality and affection and eroticism collaboratively with each other, three years after the birth of that kid, 70% of couples are doing worse and the kid is not doing particularly better either. The couples that do make a point to, re to get reconnected affectionately and sensually and then erotically who really pay attention to their love affair and their friendship and make that as important as falling in love with that newborn, they're doing better three years after the birth of the, of the kid. And the kid's doing better too. 
Um, but if in a long-term relationship, you hit these things. Somebody gets sick. Somebody gets cancer and does cancer treatment. Somebody breaks their leg. Mm. Um, you know, um, there's times you go through, there's, there's a, a catastrophic business thing or, or, or a parent has to live or something. All these things impact your, your a grandkid has to come live because the, the kid has died of an overdose or is in rehab. I mean, all of these things interfere. And if you don't have a conscious resolve to maintain that love affair, you can lose it. That develops a rationalization system that normalizes that loss of each other's lovers. That begins to keep secret desires and, and fantasies and resentments. And then you're on that 24-step path to betrayal. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah. It needs to be a conscious intent. And, you know, it, it's difficult sometimes in a committed. Well, that's why I, you know, when you talk about just the conscious intent, the, the, how consciousness gives us another territory other than just our base instincts and desires. And it's a better territory. Yeah. And that that's characteristic of moving into higher stages of development is that with your partner, you're actually becoming. Uh, committed to their growth and yes. you're committed to your growth with them and 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 the the we space between you as its own thing and them as an individual is its own thing and uh that is a whole new ball game you know and you know secrets get redefined in that situation okay so so you don't and and sexuality gets redefined when, when people are at that level, the one partner, for instance, doesn't ma mind the other partner accessing porn if it doesn't interfere with their relationship. Generally. Right. Yeah. But since we're different types of people, in some relationships, the, the other partner having any relationship with porn is, 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 is unacceptable. It's, 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 um, uh, it, it causes too much pain. We have to deal with whatever type of person. You know, one person might really want like having sex but not like having orgasm and the other person might really want them to have orgasm so they have to come to some kind of understanding about that that leads to mutually fulfilling sex as people grow together they develop more of a sense of working together to yeah. manage it. Yeah. you know one thing about okay so you're 65 i'm 69 there are certain sexual positions that i that becky and i physically can't do comfortably anymore Okay, so we have lost those positions. <laughs> those are losses. Yeah. So we have to create a sexuality that, that takes into account the positions that we can yeah. have without physical pain. Yeah, yeah same here. Yeah, there and you go. You know what? I, I, I don't care. Me neither. I love it. I, I love actually, you know, in a way, there, there's a, a certain liberation that comes from limiting things. That's, you know, that's from, Isn't from, from, yeah, a new uh, container that you work with it's almost simpler and and perhaps adds intensity yes um certainly the capacity for emotional depth deepens yeah evolve together if if it's together in the united states um if a couple is forbidden to talk about sexual fulfillment or sexual interest with each other where they literally shame each other if they do they can grow as friends but not grow as lovers and then that can build secret resentments so, you know, you got to be able to talk about it, normalize it. And then, you know, there's always some things that one person wants and the other person finds uninteresting or repulsive. And there's things, that, you know, so you find the intersections and you, you, you go into those intersections and you work with that and expand them if possible. Um, uh, new possibilities of connection continue as we develop. Because our, as our worldviews develop, then there's new 
capacities. And yeah. those new capacities always involve new relational yeah. capacities. And in a real, and now you see that that's really beautiful as I describe it. Put a secret affair in the middle of that, and all of a sudden it all is blown up. It's a it's a catastrophe. And now it just it feels like nothing is real. Everything is crazy. It makes yeah. people sick. They lose weight. They throw up. Uh, yeah. They get sick. It's just, you know, you know, John Gottman said once, he said, if people really realized the consequences of a secret affair, if, they, if everybody really knew it, nobody would ever do it. What's well, like your reason number four, Keith, of your hundred reasons? <laughs> of the hundred reasons. <laughs> yes. Reason number four, therapy bills skyrocket when you have an affair. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> Be prepared to spend thousands yeah. of dollars, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars of therapy to get through this fucking mess. Yeah. Okay. And better to spend a little bit on therapy before you do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. You know. Do, do you have people come into you and say, you know, I'm thinking about having an affair and uh, we're here because we don't want to? Absolutely. In fact, the, re the, the title for 100 Reasons came from a guy coming in saying, I want to have an affair. And I basically was going over all this with him. And in the end, you know, he, he was really committed, as it turned out, to having an affair. But in the end, he said to me, he said, well, come on, Keith, why shouldn't I have an affair? And I looked at him and said, there are a hundred reasons for you to not have a secret affair. And he said, well, that's a great book title, you know, apropos of nothing. <laughs> and I said, wow, that's a good point. And so I wrote the book. He went on and had an affair and his marriage ended and, you know, moved on into yeah. you know, other things. Yeah. Um, you know, people, yes, occasionally, but sometimes people come in and they say they're thinking about it. And I say, oh, all right. So I encourage you to go home and tell your husband or wife about it, which will cause a problem. Funny thing about that. So they'll come in as a couple and the wife will say, it's just as bad he was thinking about having a secret affair with her as it would be if he had it. And look at her and I say, look, I understand that you're going through a really bad time. And, uh, and it's really awful that he was fantasizing about this other woman. But I want to tell you from an, infinite, an awful lot of experience, this is not just as bad as if you went ahead and did it. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you know, somebody will come in and he had a one night stand. It's just as bad as this. You've been cheating on me for a year. And I say, you know, I understand yeah. this is pretty horrible, but I've, it's, it's not just as bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? I mean, it can always be a lot worse. And I know that because I've been in relationships, I've been working with relationships where it's been a lot worse. And, and not only is, is it a lot worse because of the conditions, it's a lot worse because remember, uh, quadrants, levels, lines, states, and types. Some type of, of types of people are particularly vulnerable to having their relationship structure shattered by an affair. There's just a type of person where, where one other person would feel a five on the disaster scale, they feel a nine. Where one person is resolving it within four or five months, they're still struggling with it two years later. That's just the type of person they are. And if your wife is that type or husband is that type of person and you cheat on them, okay, you know, you want to maintain that relationship. Now you got to deal with the fact that that type of person had that type of reaction. Yeah. Not Even the, though and, you might not have yourself. Now, the yeah. other thing, you fall in love with the person you're, in love, you're having the affair with. It's, a, it's an actual romantic infatuation. And you get discovered. Okay, you have to rip yourself apart from someone that you are in love with. Mm. So what do we do? 
you start to grieve. You know, you go through all the stages of grief. And the person that you go to with every other emotional distress, your partner, you ha and have for years, you cannot go to them with the grief that you feel losing your lover. You have to go to your, th your therapist with that. And I'll talk to her and he says, God, I'm missing her so much. You know, I've been devastated because they were ripped apart at the height of the right. affair. And I go, yeah, you, you have to simultaneously work on developing a relationship with your wife who hates you and you don't want to have sex with, but you need to learn how to do it with her while ripping yourself away from this person who's the yummiest sexual partner you've ever had in your entire life and who you're yearning for her, and you know would answer the phone if you called her and say, oh, God, I've missed you so much. Okay? Wow. That's, that's so hard. That's, and those, the poor people that have to go through that grieving process. Jeez. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So you have people who, for whom it would take years yeah. to heal. And, but it does work in, in that way that you've described. If people keep working on it, they get through it, in my experience. Yeah. And how about keep working on it? How, I, I just want you to uh, give us a little insight into the couples that you know, maybe have worked with, that have not had affairs, have kept all their erotic energy within the container of their relationship, and they've gone for decades, and it's still happening. Uh -huh. Tell us a little bit about them, please, Keith. Well, as it turns out, these couples have been studied. Um, not just phenomenological by me, but by other researchers like Helen Fisher. So if you put them in the scanner and you show them a picture of their partner, what happens is some of the same circuits that light up when people are in romantic infatuation light up in these long-term couples, but also a bunch of relational circuits light up too. And a guy named, I think, Pillinger, I, 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 I think I'm getting this name right, he studied 700 people in long-term relationships. And they've been together 25, 30 years. And they all said the same thing. They said, the best thing in my life, the luckiest thing in my life that ever happened was this relationship and, the, and that marriage is hard. Okay. So what's happened with these people is that they've maintained in some fashion um, some commitment to a friendship and a love affair and resolving issues into us feeling good about each other. Um, they have learned how to be grateful for each other and practice it. And if they get cruel to each other, they feel remorse and they, and they repair it in some fashion. I, I think that probably about 15% of couples that get married end up doing, doing this um, naturally. Yeah. You might add another 10 or 15% who fall to pieces and, and, are, and learn how to do it through therapy and so on. Right. That percentage might be more as time goes by, I'm not sure. There's a daily commitment in those couples a daily sense of attending to loving the other person. You know, there's, it's, it's more than respect. You know, it's, there's a certain kind of responsibility to feel warmth. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I'm nurturing a resentment at Becky, I go, you're nurturing resentment. Stop it. Remember who she is. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, whatever mm -hmm. she did that, that Good bugged Lord, me. Please. Yes. Yeah. You, you know, if you, if, if you're, partner hurts you and you go, yeah, they hurt, she hurt me or he hurt me, but I know that he didn't, she didn't intend, she doesn't like hurting me, he doesn't like it. No. Um, we can talk about it, or even if it's inadvertent, it was inadvertent, you know, that's just the nature, you know, he, he was home late and forgot to call, he forgets things, he gets so absorbed, he's better at it than he used to. You know, these couples, there's issues, 69% of couples issues are never resolved, they're perpetual, but they get better over time with happy couples. 
Why? When one person asks for some kind of attention, the other person turns and gives it to them. You know, John Gottman says that turning towards. And yep. they do that about 89% of the time. And if they're having a conflict discussion, if you videotape that conflict discussion, for every one second of negative affect they have towards their partner, they have at least five seconds of positive affect. Mm. They're always interior, interiorly adjusting to, remember she's a good person. Remember he's a good person. Remember what we're doing here. We're trying to feel better about each other. It requires, it requires, there's a, there's a, either it's natural or it's a learned capacity to always be adjusting to, feel it, to understanding the other person from a compassionate perspective. These are learnable skills, um, um, and if you practice them, you can get better at them. And that's what characterizes the couples that are happy together as friends and lovers 20, 30, 40, 50 years down right. the road. Mm -hmm. And that's they what guys have had. They may have had a decade or two of being kind of distant or too focused on the kids or something, but they come together again at the end. Oh, well, or yeah. They keep it going the whole time. Uh, probably both, right? They always have problems. There, there, are, there are always dark times. You know, Becky and I have been together, what, 46 years now. We've, we had times that were very dark. We worked on it, you know, with each other. Um, we, we made glacial progress sometimes, but we were always making some kind of progress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're still working on stuff. You yeah. know, it's not like it's perfect. It's, it's, it's better for us in different ways. And also part of it being better is we've understood what type of people we are, what type of person the other person mm -hmm. is. And we're better at having, at both adjusting to each other and being accepting of, of each other. And I've noticed this with long-term happy couples. Right. Um, well, it's the part where you talk about uh, whether it's a brain scan or whatever you were talking about, that uh, the couples that are in this category feel a spark of romantic love when they see an image of their partner. Yeah, the same circuits. I love they, that. They light up. Isn't that yeah, cool? It's totally cool. I just, just, you know, it's, to me, whenever a couple comes in, probably about a third of my practice is couples, okay? So never, you know, so nobody comes in blissful saying, yeah, we're all blissful. We want to be more blissful. I mean, I, I get once in a million years that happens, but mostly, you know, they're coming in miserable with something. So I always have a vision of them being that couple, you know, like, you know, like a climax forest, kind of a climax couple, okay? Climax Forest is a series of self-perpetuating processes that, that continues in an organic and positive fashion indefinitely as long as the forest is not being cut down and burned up by people. Okay, well, a climax couple is like that, you know, unless somebody, you know, gets a stroke or dies or something. You know, it's like that. So I always have a vision of them being that couple. And my, my job is to guide them from where they are at this moment in that direction. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful thing for you as a therapist to consciously hold that image mm -hmm. i mean it's like i forget one of your other um rules in here or uh, you know reasons, reasons but, it's about, but it's it's the the idea of that mirror neurons don't lie they don't and when we get uh you know when we hold people with a positive intent and see these this loving couple they can't help but be affected by that they are just That's at the same time, when people are putting their romantic love or lust towards somebody outside the marriage, it can't help but be reflected inside the marriage. It just, yes. It's not how the world works. And, we, and people know. And like that, that thing about mutually amplifying states, 
Now, and it, you know, the mirror neurons is interesting. The, those are motor, motor neurons that recapitulate each other's state of consciousness, including intentionality, that, in, that enhance whatever states. But there are other channels also. Um, when people feel connected, uh, uh, their hearts entrain each other. Um, uh, you know, a couple that's distressed are having a conversation about, what the, about the stress. Now, inside the guy, say, or both of them, let's just stop with the guy, he's feeling resentment. The resentment begins to create a negative story about her. He goes, come on, that's not what she's doing. She's doing this. You know, she's upset. She's tired. You know, she just, you know, she had a long night. She's, you know, she's, she's worried about her, her, her father, mother, brother, son, daughter. And, you know, so she got crabby with you. That's why she, now you can tell her, please use a different tone, but it's not like she's trying to, to, to you know, the, the whole, whatever the negative story, he's regulating that still while he's mad at her. Now she's over there feeling him being mad, but she trusts him. Okay. She, she knows he's going to regulate that anger into loving me. Mm -hmm. I, tell, I tell Becky, if I'm mad at you, it's my problem. Now, now, what's interesting about this is that people will have two different attitudes towards sex. There's a sexual growth attitude and a sexual destiny attitude. Sexual destiny people do great if they're having good sex with their partner because they go, oh, the cosmos is combined to have us be together. Okay? And there's some truth to that. Sexual growth people say, we're always working on it. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Um, but if there's problems, we know what to do. Sexual growth people tend to stay together longer and be happier with each other. But the sexual destiny people are right about one thing. There's something mysterious about a couple where both people decide we're going to do what it takes to be connected. Hmm. I don't know what, what creates that mysterious mutual connection, but, but <clears throat> I don't even know where it comes from. But when it's there, you know, they have not I'll stay as long as commitment, but I'll do what it takes commitment. They can get through a lot of stuff. Okay? Mm -hmm. And, there, and so there, there's a certain kind of destiny yeah. quality about that. But then once, once that's there, you need to have that growth model to keep moving through. And you can never tell your partner if there's something that they don't like. Get used to it. Okay? You got to be able to say, I'll work on it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That's a good one. Yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well... That's, uh, I think, a, a, an amazing tour through this treacherous terrain. It's, and you know, when it happens, it's, it's a catastrophe. But what do you do? You face your catastrophe, move through it, and, and create a new marriage. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not like we're, we're going to get back to the old marriage. We're going we're gonna to create a new marriage. Yeah. No, that's very good insight. All right, Dr. Keith. So if people are interested in finding out more about what you're doing, Dr. Keith, where do they go? Go to drkeithwitt.com. And if you sign up on my website, which you can sign up for free, you'll get, there's a process where you can get a free copy of my book, The Attuned Family. And also for one every week for 12 weeks, you'll get a video and a blog about stuff that I find to be especially important about being a person and being alive and, and being in a relationship. Fantastic. So I encourage you to go to my website and sign up and get those things. And, yeah. and if anybody wants us to talk about something, you know, let us know. You can get a hold of me at drkeithwitt.com. Uh, get a hold of Jeff on Daily Evolver. And yeah, Jeff at dailyevolver.com. Which all right. we all love. We all love the Daily Evolver. Oh. You know, I was talking to a guy in Australia, and he said, he said I, 
I look, I see a new daily evolver in my queue and I go, oh boy. Oh, that's <laughs> He looks good. forward to a new daily evolver when they show up. I All just right. wanted to pass that on. Jeff. So grateful. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Tune in next time. We'll see you then. Bye-bye everybody.